Hi, I'm Louise. And I'm John. And you're listening to the DCIF podcast, Changing World, New Opportunities, an investment podcast designed for members of the DC community. We'll be chatting with asset managers who are all passionate about DC and getting investment right for the members. Investments in DC have changed a lot, so we'll be helping you, the listener, to stay up to date with the latest, from real estate to alternatives, the challenges of trusteeship through to addressing climate change. This first series will focus on the changing world we find ourselves in and the exciting investment opportunities for DC plans. Keep up to date with our work at dcif.co.uk, where you can sign up to receive our research and get invitations to our launches. You can also follow us on Twitter at DCIF underscore UK and on LinkedIn, where we are the Defined Contribution Investment Forum. Fantastic. Let's get on with the show. Hey, Louise, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, John. How are you doing today? I'm very well indeed, thank you. Good. And welcome to our listeners for another enthralling episode of the DCIF's podcast series. Today, we're going to be speaking with one of our members, uh, Kurt Walton. Kurt is a Senior Vice President of Investment Affairs and Investor Education for NAREIT. And for those of you not familiar, NAREIT is the worldwide representative voice for REITs with a particular interest in US real estate. Now, NAREIT are an interesting company and they actually provide the DCIF with a slightly different lens to look at things from because unlike being a traditional asset manager, which most of our members are, because they're a representative body, they actually have a slightly different take, which is great for us because it just gives us a different perspective when we're thinking about asset classes and in particular real estate. NAREIT is a membership organization and its members are REITs themselves and other real estate companies throughout the world, as well as advisors to the overall community. So that's great for us as the DCIF because, as I mentioned, it just gives us a slightly different perspective when we're thinking about the research we produce. Yeah, and they do their own great research as well. So I think our agendas are very much um, aligned. So I think this episode is a great one for anyone who is interested in real estate and particularly why invest in real estate, why invest in REITs in particular, when is it appropriate, when might it not be appropriate. Kurt talks a bit about the hesitations of DC schemes in embracing REITs and how they have traditionally been a bit more popular among DB schemes. And he also talks a bit about the possibility of unfairness between DB and DC scheme members, just in terms of the opportunities they have to access REITs. Um, I think that kind of unfairness point between DB and DC in terms of investment is a topic which I think should be really interesting to anyone running a DC pension plan. Kurt, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Louise. Happy to be here. Oh, we're happy to have you. I wondered if you might be able to start off just by telling us a little bit about you and a bit about NAREIT. Sure, absolutely. So uh, let me start with NAREIT. So not, NAREIT is the nonprofit trade association for REITs in Washington, D.C. And as far as me, I head up investment affairs for NAREIT. As a trade association, we don't sell any products or services. We share research on the role of REITs and publicly traded real estate within investment portfolios. And we share research from our economists, our internal economists, but also external research from the academic community, as well as our sponsored research partners. And over time, we've worked with a number of firms such as Ibbotson Associates, Morningstar, Wilshire Associates, and CEM Benchmark. Perfect. So I think there are lots of parallels really between NAREIT and the DCIF. We're both trying to increase understanding among investors, aren't we? Absolutely. Perfect. So we thought you would be a great addition to our real estate mini series. And I guess kicking off just with quite a broad question, if you're a DC scheme, why is real estate important? Why should you think about it and look at it? Well, I think, you know, for decades, if you if you look at other segments of the retirement market, the defined benefit market, 
for years, many years, decades, DB schemes have used real estate. And that's because they recognize that in addition to stocks, bonds, and cash, that real estate is a fundamental asset class or core asset class. It has unique investment attributes and return drivers. And you know, if you look at it you know, kind of in a simple way, companies in the stock market are driven by a business cycle. Real estate is driven by the real estate cycle. And for that reason, the return patterns are somewhat different. So that provides a diversification opportunity, particularly within an equity portfolio. The other thing I'll say is that whereas the DC world, and if I'm using the US as a model, the DC world is catching up to the DB world in the use of real estate, particularly through the use of indirect real estate, including REITs. And maybe I should do a little definition here. Oh, but yes, when, I, when I say indirect, I'm going to be referring to REITs. I'm going to be using it interchangeably. Direct real estate is direct ownership in property, but I'll be talking about indirect real estate and REITs interchangeably. Studies have shown that DB plans outperform DC plans. And one of the key drivers of that is underrepresented asset classes that are used by DB plans that are not used by DC plans. And real estate is a big part of that. It does raise the question in a situation where a particular scheme has a DB plan and a DC plan. If the scheme is using real estate in the DB plan, why wouldn't they be using it in the DC plan? Are they being good fiduciaries if they're, they're missing that, that particular asset class within the DC plan? Why do you think they've been so slow to jump into real estate in the DC world compared to the DB world? What's held people back? Well, I can speak from the American side of things, but and I think it is an analog for the UK, is I think when DC plans in the US were set up, they stuck with very simplistic models in terms of investments. So it may have started you know, back in the day with stable value options and maybe a bond option and maybe then a stock option. It started out very slowly there. And then over time, they began adding options. But I think from the beginning, I think it was the simplicity of the platform, recognizing that planned participants were going to be investing in these vehicles, and they wanted to be very careful about what types of options they put up on platforms. I'm sure we'll get into it in a bit more detail, Kurt, but just in terms of the, the historic returns that have come from indirect versus direct, is it, is it broadly comparable? You know, is it broadly comparable but with higher levels of risk or is it better? Is it worse? Can you just give the listeners a, a view as to, to what the performance has been like? Absolutely. I mean, over time, if I was going to kind of boil it down, with indirect real estate or REITs, you're getting, over time, we've seen actually REITs outperform direct real estate. And it's by a meaningful amount. There have been studies that have been done by CEM benchmarking, but also the academic community have demonstrated that REITs have outperformed direct real estate. And the most recent study by CEM benchmarking showed that outperformance was on the order of 200 basis points per year. So that's a meaningful outperformance. But what you're getting with direct real estate is low reported volatility, and that's of great value to many investors. So that's really, if I boil it down to the most kind of simple comparison between the two, and what you're getting in terms of investment attributes, you're getting this outperformance on the REIT side, 
but then you're getting this low report of volatility again, which is a benefit to uh, some really perceive as a strong benefit uh, on the direct side. Um, here in the UK, what I suppose what we're finding is that most schemes typically have exposure to a balanced UK property exposure. So retail, industrial, offices, et cetera. Is there an equivalent sort of REIT fund or benchmark that can replicate that type of sector exposure? Or do you find that REITs tend to be a lot more sector specific or country specific? Well, I mean, because they're publicly traded instruments and that you can easily apply indexes to these types of instruments, there's a broad array of what you can get. You could get, as some people call it, the core four of real estate investments. So that's retail, residential, office, and industrial. But what the REIT market or indirect market has been able to do is to be able to track the economy. And this is not just in the US, but globally, that as economies evolve, the public markets have evolved and the types of real estate that you could get in the public market typically leads the private market or the, the direct market in terms of types of property. So through the REIT market, you now can get exposure to beyond the core four into other types of property types. So we call them e-commerce property types, such as data centers or towers. But you could also get self-storage. But as it relates to how you can execute this, you can execute just the core four if you wanted to through a REIT or indirect strategy, or you could get that broader property exposure. Thanks. So Kat, what are the main considerations that UK trustees should consider when it comes to incorporating real estate into DC? Obviously, you've seen this happening over the pond. What are the sort of parallels you see in terms of the US and the UK? And it must be really interesting for you looking at this, looking at this market with fresh eyes. No, it is it is interesting. And I, you know, without being presumptuous here, I I think the US can serve as a helpful model for the UK. I think you know over time, as it relates to implementing real estate, as I said, defined benefit schemes in the U.S. have been using real estate for decades, whereas the D.C. market was slower to adopt. But when they started adopting, they started using specific funds, real estate-oriented funds. And these are typically indirect funds, REIT funds. And there are probably 40% of schemes, DC schemes in the US that have standalone REIT funds. But over time, what we're seeing is that, and I'll just to be clear about another trend beyond real estate that's happening in the US and may serve as a good model for the UK, is that the US has really gone to the, the most significant trend in the DC market in the US in terms of investments is the use of asset allocation products. It started with target risk funds, and then it evolved to target date funds. And also, there's also managed accounts, which is another asset allocation offering. And all of the flows now, just about, particularly new money going into defined contribution plans in the US are going into asset allocation products, particularly target date funds. And what's really positive, at least as it relates to the direct side or indirect side and REITs, is that they've played a big role in the use, the use of them in those target date funds. So, you know, back in 2003, about 25% of target date funds had real estate exposure. Now, close to 100% of target date funds 
have real estate exposure. And that's primarily been through indirect real estate or REIT exposure. Now, there's still more work to be done because that exposure is too shallow. Our studies have shown with the studies we've done our, from our sponsored research partners, as I mentioned, Morningstar, Ibbotson, Wilshire Associates, have all shown that in order to get meaningful exposure to real estate, you need an allocation somewhere between 5 and 15%. So these target date funds in the US are not at that 5 to 15% level across the board. But many of them are. Many of them do have meaningful exposure, double-digit exposure to indirect real estate or to REITs. And that is where the investor is going to be able to get that meaningful exposure to real estate. In terms of that sort of 5 to 15% allocation you're sort of referencing there, sorry if I missed this, but that's to real estate more generally, or is that the kind of the, the ideal REIT allocation? So therefore, technically might sit alongside a direct mandate as well? Well, basically, the, the studies that we have done have talked about indirect real estate as a proxy for direct real estate. So it could be either direct real estate, indirect real estate, or a combination of the both. So that 5 to 15% really could be either. Okay, thanks. And I mean, that's a big jump, isn't it? that allocation among target date funds. What, what's driven that big increase over the last, what, two decades or so? I'd like to think that I've driven that increase. <laughs> you personally, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think what's happened, and I said kind of at the, the outset of it, I kind of explained the benefits of real estate. And I believe you have other podcasts where others are speaking about the benefits of real estate. But I think that's what's really driving it. I mentioned before that real estate is driven by the real estate market cycle, that stocks, so equities in general, are driven by the business cycle. So because they are different cycles, they tend to have different return patterns, which benefit the investor by providing diversification. So I think that's really kind of the key driver is, is sort of a recognition of the importance of that and the drive towards more professionally managed products, such as asset allocation products, target date funds, target risk funds, that has driven. So what's happened is is the asset allocation is in the hands of professionals as opposed to planned participants. And for that reason, these professionals recognize the importance of real estate and they've implemented it into these types of asset allocation products. And that's why that exposure is there. So I suppose one of the the attractions of indirect or REITs is the sort of the daily access that you can get from this type of structure. Do you find in the US that the REITs typically sit alongside a direct mandate or holding and therefore it's the REITs that are used to help manage the allocation against some strategic asset allocation? That's probably making it far too simplistic because obviously it has the risk and return characteristics that, that you need from any allocation within a a default fund or, or an investment, but is that one of the key attractions? Is that the ability to trade quite quickly and frequently? Well, I think, you know, thus far, what we've seen is the use primarily of indirect and, and not as much direct real estate in the US. So over time, that's really the vast majority of situations where you have exposure to real estate in a scheme, it's been through the REITs. But what we're seeing increasingly, and there is value there, is we're seeing, as, as you're suggesting, indirect and direct side by side. 
And John, did you, as you asked me earlier, you know, kind of what types of benefits do you get from each? And I did boil it down to two attributes. It, you know, we could get further into that if, if we wanted to, but you're getting with the REITs, you are getting this meaningful outperformance, but it's at the cost of somewhat higher volatility. Whereas with the direct real estate, you're getting, you know, maybe the performance isn't quite as high, but you are getting this lower reported volatility. And as I said, there, that, there is value to that. And used in combination, they could be very powerful using indirect and direct together. And I'm, I'm happy to get into that a little bit further if, you, if you'd like. Well, one of the kind of follow-up questions I think we were going to ask you is kind of related to that in terms of the areas and sectors that REITs can provide access to? And does that differ to direct? And, and maybe that will help us to kind of draw out some of the pros and cons of REITs versus direct. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I said a little bit earlier, I kind of touched on this, but we like to say that our, our homes house us and REITs house the economy. So as I said earlier, REITs have really evolved to house the economy. In the US, for example, REITs were created in 1960, and they were really created to provide investors of all sizes the opportunity to invest in commercial real estate through the stock market. So you didn't need to have a huge amount of money in order to be able to invest in commercial real estate. And I, I think there's, there's really you know, real value there. And you know what? I've kind of lost the thread there, Louise, That's on the okay. question. okay. Don't worry. What was I saying? I think we were talking about benefits of REITs versus direct in terms of like oh, what areas type. and sectors REITs can provide access to. Right. I gave that great line about, you know, REITs evolve with the economy. Right. So, no, I mean, I think, I think it is a good analog. And sort of an example. So I mentioned that REITs were created in 1960. Who would have thought the healthcare sector would be as big as it is. And REITs have come, or indirect real estate has come to house that part, at least as far as the US economy, but more globally, you know, we've seen that. We've seen over time the advent of other types of properties. People didn't even know back in the 60s what a data center was. I mean, it couldn't even have been anticipated, but there was a need for entities to have an ability to have these large servers in these types of properties to manage that part of the economy. Cell towers is you know, another property type that is in the indirect sector or REIT sector. It's actually a very large sector now. So you know, what has happened is, is you know, whereas about you know, 10 years ago, the REIT market was really dominated by the core four, retail, residential, office, and industrial. And only about 10% of that, of the REIT market, was represented by other property types. Now it's close to 40% of the public market, of the indirect REIT market, is in the hands of data centers and towers and these, these logistics, other forms of real estate. So I think that's, that's really a benefit that you can get from owning REITs or indirect real estate in complement with core real estate or core direct real estate. So you're getting that those additional exposures by property type. That's so fascinating. I didn't realize that was a thing that, you know, REITs versus direct, they sort of had slightly different investment universes, I guess, in a way. Uh, I, I didn't know that. Huh. Yes. <laughs> so how has that come about and why? Why? 
Why does it exist in that way? How have these two universes evolved in, in different ways so that their, their scopes are different? I think they've evolved because I said is, is that the public market or the, the indirect market, the REIT market, tends to lead the direct market in terms of a number of things. And this is one of those areas is that when things are securitized or in the public markets, they are a bit more nimble and they have the ability to be able to you know, place money into things like data centers and, and cell towers. So that evolution happens on the public side or the REIT side, indirect side, but it is, it is actually happening now on the direct side too. You, you see there are on the direct side, you're seeing more investments in property types that are been in the REIT sector for some time, these e-commerce property types. So there will be some catch up there, but for now, there is some differentiation between the direct side and the indirect side. And if I were to boil down, you know, what you're getting by combining the two, direct and indirect, is that even before you get into this property sector diversification discussion, you get an improved risk return profile when you combine direct and indirect real estate. So I think it really does benefit the investor to have a combination of the two. One of the things that when you use indirect is, is you get very simple, easy exposure to global real estate when you go through the public markets. And then finally, we've already touched on this, is when you're looking at by property type, you're getting full exposure to all types of property by combining public and private real estate or direct and indirect real estate. So that, that's really what it, what it comes down to. So again, real, real value to the investor to be able to invest in both. Just linking back to your point about REITs sort of leading the direct market in the UK, from memory, the alternative sector is about 25% of a typical benchmark for a UK direct property fund. And that is made up of student accommodation, hospitals, car parks, these types of things, which from what you're saying have been in, in REIT form for a number of years. Yes. Um, and you know because people are moving away from to retail given all the problems offices because of all the challenges you know they are looking for additional types of direct real estate exposure some of these tend to be less economically sensitive i suppose is one of the key attractions for them so yeah it, it sounds as if the direct market is catching up with with some of the developments we've seen in enlisted over many years Absolutely. And you know, it's sort of been interesting, John, is, is that there are, and it was good to hear Louise say like, oh, I, I didn't know that. And, and it's not an uncommon response that people aren't aware. And in fact, when we kind of started documenting this, we're like, wow, these e-commerce sectors have really grown. And what ends up happening though, too, is you have the real diversity in terms of performance. So during the coronavirus, during the epidemic, we saw certain property types do really well in the REIT markets, such as data centers, because people were still buying products through Amazon and other places. Data centers are involved in that process, right? So are cell towers. So it was really interesting is in going you know, broader beyond the core four, you do see some divergence in terms of performance. And I would say that's a good thing. There's a diversity in performance within the indirect market, within the REIT market. So you were talking before about carving out different sectors. You know, How could you do that? Yes, if you want the core four, retail, residential, office, industrial, you could get that. But if you want to go broader, you could get exposure to the full panoply of, of property types, 
or you know just about everything in between. If an investor really wants something, a product can be created to provide access to whatever property types they want. And here in the UK, we've got some companies that are REIT, naturally, one that looks specifically at logistics. And I was just actually just pulling up at share price over the last three years. And unsurprisingly, going into COVID, it took a massive hit. But as we came out of COVID, logistics did much, much better for right. reasons that you, you mentioned. And so we've got, here in the UK, we've got specific companies that just focus on one particular area. So this one is, is Tritax and the big box, a REIT that it's got. And we've got other examples of those. And I think those types of structures are becoming more and more important. Now, that's one company, so it would form part of a diversified portfolio. But it just does echoes the point that, that you were talking about in that you know, these REITs that are focused on particular sectors, and depending on the sector dynamics, can actually do really, really well, depending on which sector they're exposed to. Right, exactly. So let's talk about cost for a minute, comparing REITs to direct equivalents. Is there a difference in cost? What does that difference look like? The cost is, a, this isn't going to be a long discussion. The cost, it's pretty straightforward. So REITs are about half the cost of a direct real estate. So indirect is about half the cost of indirect okay. real estate. Okay. Wow. I'm sold. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, throughout this series of podcasts, Kurt, one of the things we're, we've been always speaking to the presenters about, or the people we're interviewing, is ESG, the characteristics themselves that may or may not be inherent in the asset class, and also reporting. So I'm just wondering from the, you know, the ESG-ness of, of REITs themselves, is that a trend that we're seeing where there are going to be ESG-specific REITs, or is it a case of actually just trying to understand better the ESG characteristics of the underlying buildings that go into these REITs? I'd say more the latter, John. I mean, I think, you know, what's happening and okay, so this is where Europe is ahead of the US, you know, when it comes to ESG, you know, we're getting there. But I could tell you when I, you know, when I go to investor meetings with consultants or managers or schemes for that matter, there is a huge focus on ESG. So the REIT market is really, the indirect market has really had to focus attention on that to be relevant. And they've taken it very seriously and they've done substantial things, meaningful things in order to address the ESG issue. And one of them has to do with reporting and making sure the reporting on these measures, on these ESG measures, and the reporting has really ticked up on these public companies in the REIT sector. And then also, you know, the, the scoring, as you well know, the scoring of these different entities as it relates to ESG are not completely harmonized. I mean, they're still like they're still coming together on that. But I would say, you know, one of the things that we did notice early on is that there were certain companies that maybe they were doing the right thing as it relates to ESG measures, but they weren't reporting those, you know, what they were doing. And some of these entities that go out and score on the basis of ESG would see no score for that particular for a particular company and, and just sort of rate them as a very low score just because there wasn't reporting. So we've had to, as an industry group, NARIT has gone out and said that, look, if you're doing something, make sure that you put it out there. So when the scraping happens by these raters, that that score is in there and the scores have you know steadily improved. So ESG is, has become a, a very significant thing. You're not going to be in business long if you're not focusing you know, on these measures. And I will say that our member companies are absolutely you know, 100% focused on ESG. 
So we've talked a little bit about differences in REITs between the US and the UK and, and what we can learn over here from um, the US experience. Is there anything you think we should leave in the US? Have there been any learning experiences there that we don't have to go through on this side of the pond? Absolutely, Louise. So I would say what I would leave on this side of the pond is our evolution, and it's not doesn't just have to do with real estate. And I think I touched on this before. It has to do with the evolution of defined contribution plans in the U.S. And you know, one of the benefits of, of my being in the industry for so long is that I've seen a lot, and I touched on this before. I think you know, in the defined contribution world in the U.S., it started very simply, as I mentioned, with maybe a stable value fund, a fixed income bond fund and then a stock fund in over time. And then what we had was people said, well, that doesn't provide a meaningful diversification. We, we need to provide additional options for people. So that ended up resulting in a proliferation of funds where you, you, know, you had a scheme that offered 20 to 30 funds. And yes, you could find diversification if you pick the right combination of funds, but most individuals are not going to be able to do that. They don't just don't have the education to be able to do that. So you ended up with corner solutions, people that were way too conservative in their investment choices or way too risky in their investment choices. So then we had this evolution here in the asset allocation area where we had the use of target risk funds, which was a good, good way for professionals to have an opportunity to weigh in on the asset allocation. So the individual investor didn't have to do it. And I think that was a good vehicle. But I think the target date fund structure, if I were to say myself, just being in this, it's not a perfect structure, but it is a more DB-oriented solution where the asset allocation is in the hands of the professional. They can provide that diversification because they know what they're doing. And they're providing that diversification. One of the ways they're providing that diversification is through the use of underrepresented asset classes. And I will say real estate is, is one of those asset classes. So they're automatically, the investor is getting exposure to real estate by virtue of the fact that they're in one of these professionally managed target date funds. So I would say that I think the UK could really benefit from a structure such as a target date fund structure, and in good part because of the automatic diversification they're going to get from the assets being in the hand of a professional. That makes sense. So REITs have obviously been around a lot longer in the US as a sort of an investment concept. Is there a sort of common misconception you think that when you're out doing roadshows or just generally chatting, chatting to investors, that they come up with this misconception and half of your battle is actually overcoming that misconception? I just wondered if there is something that people just think is inherent in REITs and it's actually not really as, as bad as they think. I would say, John, I'm glad you gave me that question. It gives me the opportunity to dispel that. What I would say is that some would say REITs don't provide diversification. They're, they'll say that you know REITs are stocks, right? So they're just like any other stock. And if you're investing in if you're investing in REITs, it's just like you're investing in any other equity. And really, as as I mentioned before, because REITs respond to the real estate cycle, their return patterns are different than other stocks that are responding to the business cycle. So there is a diversification opportunity that is provided 
buy REITs or indirect real estate. And we have the data to demonstrate that. We've done correlation studies, but beyond us, and actually in some respects, more importantly, Morningstar has done these studies, Wilshire has done these studies. So independent third parties have done these studies to demonstrate that indirect real estate REITs provide a diversification benefit. Fantastic. I guess, Kurt, my, my final question to you is going to be, if a trustee or of a pension scheme, a DC scheme is listening to this and wants to go away and find out more about investing in REITs, what would be the first step that you would tell them to take? Well, you know, this is exactly what we do. So they could actually reach out to me. And as I mentioned, we provide these data and it's data. I think what's important about NAREIT is, is yes, we have some very talented internal economists but we do the sponsored research, which is third party, independent. These organizations have you know, far too much reputation risk to not do a good job in doing these types of asset allocation studies. And I think that that would be the answer. They actually could contact me. They could go to REIT.com, which is our website, where we provide this information on the role of public real estate, indirect real estate, REITs within investment portfolios. Perfect. Well, Kurt, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really fascinating to learn more about the world of REITs. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Thanks, Louise. Thanks very much, John. You've been listening to Changing World New Opportunities, brought to you by the DC Investment Forum. Head over to dcif.co.uk, where you can read all the research the DCIF publishes, follow the DCIF on Twitter and LinkedIn, and subscribe to this show on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Changing World, New Opportunities.